We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And from Taijong by Donovan Smith. Hey, great to be back. Tonight we'll be discussing plans by the Ministry of Digital Affairs to restrict the use of China-made IC products by government agencies. Some of the latest election news from the North and the Centre. And a much-mocked Zhonghua County mascot that some say looks like an old chip. But we'll begin with talk about Taiwan at the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of China in Beijing. Now, speaking on the opening day of the bash in his major speech, Xi Jinping said Beijing will continue to strive for peaceful reunification with Taiwan, but will never promise to renounce the youth of force. He also warned that China reserves the option of taking all measures necessary against interference by outside forces. And he went on to say that the one country, two systems model remains the best means of achieving reunification of the two sides of the Taiwan. Taiwan Strait. Now, here in Taiwan, the presidential office was busy reiterating that it represents a sovereign and democratic country. And the presidential office said that President Tsai Ing-wen's national security team was closely monitoring the party congress and stressed that mainstream public opinion here in Taiwan has clearly rejected the one country, two systems idea. Now, the KMT also responded to Xi's speech with party chairman Eric Zhu, saying the KMT will continue to safeguard the Republic of China, along with regional and cross-strait peace and stability and opposes any attempts to sabotage and hurt the ROC. And he went on to reiterate that the KMT is opposed to both the Taiwanese independence idea and the Beijing proposed one country's two systems model. Now, the KMT also sent a congratulatory message to the Communist Party of China as it began its Congress. And in that message, the KMT said it hopes that the two sides of the strait can have substantial exchanges and cooperation based on the foundation of the 1992 consensus and opposition to Taiwan in Independence. Needless to say, that message raised some rather iry feelings here, with the DPP accusing the KMT of bowing to Beijing and describing the letter as being a shameful incident that will forever be a part of the KMT's history. The government, though, for its part, was rather non-committal in its response to the KMT's congratulatory message to Mr Xi and Co, with Mainland Affairs Council Minister Cho Tai-san saying political parties here in Taiwan are allowed to conduct their own diplomacy, but they should still be careful about who they choose to have contact with as they may fail to meet the expectations of the public. And he went on to say that the government has no opinion about the letter as Taiwan is a democratic, free, open and pluralistic country where different opinions are recognised. So, Brian, Mr Xi talked about Taiwan, but, I mean, was there anything new in his comments there? Yeah, not too much that was new in that sense. Uh, it was expected Taiwan would come up in some form with Xi expected to consolidate a unprecedented third term in power at the uh, National Congress and this does signal that Taiwan is a significant priority for Xi. But the claim that the f- use of force is on the table for reunifying, quote-unquote, with Taiwan, that's something new. And so I don't think there were actually particularly strong reactions from the Taiwanese public either, even as much of the international world was very focused in on that messaging. Uh, it is interesting that it does come up so early in the National Congress rather than, say, afterwards in a statement. But overall, it's not anything new. Yeah, no, I mean, Brian's absolutely right. I mean, there, there was absolutely, there, there wasn't actually anything new in the comments, uh, nothing dramatic. But there was, it's hard to really put my finger on it, but there's a sense of foreboding about the way that he brought it up. And as Brian noted, he brought it up very early. And it was the biggest applause line, apparently, of the speech. 
uh, talking about uh, uh, unifying with Taiwan, and this was, you know, the uh, this was a part of the national rejuvenation, um, which it's really kind of hard to put put my finger on it, but there's something about it which feels more ominous. Even though the language, if you just read the language, there's nothing new, there's nothing dramatic about it uh, compared to some, some of Xi's other statements in the past. But what I'm finding really alarming is there's been a flurry of comments both locally and abroad which suggest, and there are people who have access to information that you and I don't have, like Anthony Blinken saying that uh, China's uh, plans to invade Taiwan have been accelerated. You have the U.S. Navy Chief of Naval uh, Operations, Michael Gilday, saying that Taiwan could be invaded as early as 2023 or even this year, which is logistically improbable. And then you have, and now this is what really kind of worried me, is the National Security Bureau Director General uh, Chen Mingtong uh, on Thursday, he said that China could use force to coerce Taiwan's government into accepting unfavorable terms set out by the Chinese government in 2023, although he didn't say that would necessarily be an invasion. Um, so there's there's a there seems to be a flurry of comments from people who have access to intelligence that we don't have, which suggest something dark is about to happen. Um, the problem is is that I don't know how good these their analysts are. I mean, there is no sign necessarily of anything happening, um, although uh, China has been using the um, COVID lockdown, you know, the dynamic zero COVID policy to make sure that they have you using, they, they have that app, which basically, you know, you have the green or red, uh, which determines where and when and how, you know, how you can move about. Um, and of course, the mass mandatory testing, which also looks like they're preparing the public there for some kind of mass mobilization. Now, all of this may be just simply over-interpreting, but there is, a, I, I guess I'd put it down to a sense of just nervousness, like something doesn't quite feel right. So it is interesting that this has become much more of a refrain of uh, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party in recent years, for example, starting with the 40th anniversary of the letter to Taiwan compatriots, uh, saying this claim that that force is still on the table, reminding of this. At the same time, then, for example, when one looks at China's recent white paper, which was released not too uh, long after the post events, around the timeline of the uh, live fire drills that took place around Taiwan, it still signified that economic means of outreach were still a priority, even as China is seeking to address its issues with uh, military capacity that prevent it right now from carrying out an invasion. So I think oh, what's interesting to note is that there is all these warnings now from government officials from the U.S. and so forth. Uh, I do think one needs to look at this with a note of skepticism because of what they say publicly and what they do internally is still debated. Uh, for example, just trying to say that China has a, a timeline for invading Taiwan may be an attempt to stimulate military reform or more discussion of the issue or generally to increase the alarm in that sense. But uh, I think it's interesting then particularly that when Chen Mingtong, the uh, National Security Bureau head, 
make these comments, you can't actually really go against the U.S. publicly. And I think that that's one of those things. And one does see even conflicting signals from U.S. government officials. The Pentagon said they don't see an imminent invasion of Taiwan, uh, similarly from experts in Taiwan and from government officials as well. And so we want has increased mixed messaging on all sides, really. And Brian, what about the KMT's congratulatory letter to Beijing? Yeah, it's also one of those strange things. I mean, they uh, do not always benefit themselves by association with China right after these comments. I mean, similar to the trip that the vice chair of the KMT took to China right after the Pelosi visit. Yeah, I mean, obviously the Andrew Shaw trip to uh, China. What the problem is, is that in a lot of cases when the KMT communicates to uh, to the CCP like they did right after the Pelosi trip, is they'll actually they go out of their way, and this is this is what's a little bit disturbing about it, is that in each case they go out of their way to blame tensions in the cross-strait relationship on the DPP. And what's problematic about that is they you know they blame the DPP administration, and and the problem with this is that what they're doing effectively is they're saying that their own democratically elected government, by the will of the people in Taiwan that chose the government, is wrong, and they're effectively siding with the Chinese Communist Party against their own democratically elected government. It's one thing to have partisan disagreements and attack the DPP for any number of things, which in some of it's reasonable. Um, but this, in this particular case, they are going. They they keep going out of their way and actually siding with an enemy state that is threatening invasion and against this country's democratically elected government, and that's a really dangerous thing to do. I mean, Brian, do you think possibly some in the KMT believe that if China does begin to coerce Taiwan in a rather gnarly sort of way, they could be back in power because they'd be the only people that Beijing would trust. And would Beijing trust them? Yeah, I think so, absolutely. And I think that is why the KMT does this, actually, in order to reinforce the point that, well, we're the only party in Taiwan that can communicate with the Chinese Communist Party. And so, for example, if you want to avoid an invasion, then you should vote for us. And then this frames the DPP, of course, as cross-strait provocateurs, ideologically bent on pursuing independence at all costs. Uh, but in this sense, it's also quite telling about what the KMT is at present. This is before elections. Uh, the KMT has historically leveraged on this card, saying that it is the party that can maintain stable cross-state relations and can communicate with China. And they're leaning in on it again. But this is something that the KMT has increasingly come under fire for because of the fact that the KMT is seen as selling out Taiwan sovereignty or just uh, kind of siding and cozying up with the Chinese Communist Party in spite of its actions. Yeah, and the thing is is that really the KMT is not doing itself a lot of favors on this. It's not popular with the broad voting public. And and the thing is, is that the CCP has already written a series of articles in, in, in like the Global Times that have called into question the KMT's reliability and uh, Eric Chu, the uh, you know the KMT chair, has been trying to promote the party as pro-U.S., uh, strong on Taiwan's military, sort of bring the, the KMT back to the 1990s um, as a pro, pro as a pro-U.S. anti-communist sort of party. 
but the problem is that there's a lot of internal problems within within the KMT, in that there is a strong pro-China faction, which and a lot of these people have have considerable power. They're pro-92 consensus, um, and they still have a lot of power within the party, and they're kind of led by my you know former President Ma Ying-jeou. And they're putting a lot of pressure on Eric Jew, who's trying to kind of move away from uh, this because he knows that with the voting public, this just isn't going down. But, he, you know, he, he doesn't re- – he came into office uh, with only 40-some-odd percent of the vote in the KMT as uh, party chair, and he's had a string of defeats so far. So he's – kind of in a weak position within the party. So he's kind of flip-flopping back and forth between trying to appease different wings of the party, but also, and I think he, he has a fairly accurate idea of where the public is at, and I think he's fairly aware that where the KMT is at is not in the mainstream of public opinion. And, he, and he's trying to pull the party toward what the mainstream public uh, you know, toward mainstream public opinion because he wants the party to win elections. But he's having trouble pulling the party with him. And so he's kind of caught in this very troubling dynamic between different wings of the party and where he, his vision of where he thinks the party needs to go. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And so I think the problems of factualism that are really deeply rooted in the KMT at present, and so cannot even get together its messaging straight regarding this. Uh, there's some extent to which maybe there's a balancing act going on, trying to please all parties, but I think uh, involve, uh, not, not political parties. But then I think in that sense, perhaps when you do actually try to come off as both pro-US and pro-China, it's just divided messaging and you're not actually then having a concrete message. And I think voters may not accept that either. And moving on now, and the Ministry of Digital Affairs on Tuesday of this week announced that it's working on proposals to restrict the use of China-made information and communications products by Taiwan government agencies. Now, according to the ministry, the move is aimed at preventing Chinese cyber attacks and enhancing national security. And the proposals have been put forward in the form of amendments to the principles on restricting the use of products that endanger national cyber security. The proposed amendment will ban the use of Chinese-made ICT products and services, including electronic bills boards and surveillance cameras by public enterprises and government agencies and their private contractors. However, the ministry says in situations where there is no alternative to made-in-China products, the matter will be handled on a case-by-case basis. Now, Digital Minister Audrey Tung says her office has invited the Cabinet's Legal Affairs Committee and relevant government agencies to formally submit their views on the proposed amendment. So, Brian, we've talked about this on numerous occasions, and I would have thought that the government by now had got their fingers out their bottoms and was actually doing something about this but it appears not because we <laughs> now need not. we now need more things to make them do it yeah that's right and so this has come up more than once regarding uh, the possibility of for example chinese backdoors in technology that is used by government uh, for example regarding hikvision cameras and that has been an issue for a while it's been discussed for a while and now there's still issues then regarding that uh, the fact is that there are reports recently for example in commonwealth that chinese companies were entering taiwan by posing as Taiwanese companies, and that this had even won government tenders. That is to say that the electronics would pose as Taiwanese, but the parts inside would be Chinese. And that might mean there are still backdoors. Uh, So this is quite troubling, and actually it's quite hard to sort out then, because there also needs to be a vetting process as to what products are authentically not from China. But also it does point to larger issues regarding, for example, global supply chains. I mean, there's a report that Taiwan denied, the government denied, a while ago that 
Taiwanese semiconductors are used even in the Chinese missiles pointed at Taiwan. Uh, there are reports even that, for example, with the U.S. with advanced fighter jets, that some of the parts are coming from China. And so it points to how closely integrated global supply chains are at present for some products. And that does definitely, definitely includes the electronics industry. Yeah. Now, I, when it came to, you know, after, you know, around the Pelosi visit, there was the, and a big part of the publicity around this move was that there was um, hacking of the big big screens uh, in some train stations uh, to, you know, the Chinese hackers got into the the screens and, you know, put anti-Pelosi messages and called her a witch and all of this. And 7-Elevens in southern Taiwan had their screens hijacked. Um, but that... That none of that looks like that was back door. That, like it wasn't a back door issue. That just looked like it was hackers. Uh, so it was purely a software thing, not a hardware thing. That that's really what it smells like. But that being said, it doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't or there aren't uh, hardware. You know, built-in back doors in this uh, hardware or in the. Um, the software firmware within within the hardware, when the, you know when it's shipped, um, you know Chen Mingtong went to Thailand, and there's some suspicions that, that there was some you know Huawei equipment was hacked, and you know to and revealed his trip. Um, so I think that the concerns are well founded, but they're kind of pitching it. Um, they're they're pitching of putting in these restrictions, using the examples that they did, uh, you know, the, the hacking of the screens in the train stations and in 7-Elevens, probably don't actually demonstrate uh, the reality of the worries. Those don't look like those were hardware things. They probably could happen with Taiwanese-made equipment, just looking at it technically. But again, um, the, you know, security services around the world for years now have been more and more uh, focused on and believe there is, including in, in Taiwan's intelligence, um, that some of the hardware coming out of China does indeed have back doors. And so they're, you know, uh, amateur hackers may not be aware or don't know how to access these back doors, but that's a genuine and very serious worry. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And so it is a matter of concern there. Uh, what is interesting is that while it's framed in these terms, for example, regarding those hacking incidents, those could have been just digital security lapses. And I think that's another issue then that's harder to address by legislation, that there are poor digital security practices in many places. In those cases, it might be that these monetary systems were outsourced to a contractor then that had, for example, weak passwords, maybe just one, two, three, four, five, or let's say eight eights. Uh, or just a phone number or something like that. And so that's actually not too hard to crack. But then it's easier, I think, to pin this on the possibility of backdoors from China. And that is definitely something that there needs to be action taken on because of, for example, let's say Chinese manufactured drones. Uh, drones need to connect to satellites and they could be routing data through China. In that case, then, for example, drones flying around in sensitive areas, that could actually prove quite dangerous. Uh, and so I think there definitely needs to be action taking on this, but it is quite difficult. And then particularly regarding what I mentioned earlier, uh, regarding Chinese companies entering Taiwan, posing as Taiwanese companies, one also has the fact that many Taiwanese companies are always seeking what is cheapest. And so that often means Chinese manufactured parts. Uh, and you do have very high profile cases of 
Chinese goods being passed off as Taiwanese ones. For example, during the COVID-19 uh, outbreak, then there were masks that were part of the national, from companies part of the national team that were actually passing off Chinese masks as higher grade Taiwanese masks. There also then reports recently that perhaps the military, some cloth came from China uh, for some uh, equipment and so forth. And so this story comes up a lot of times and sometimes it is actually a kind of prestige issue because then it's seen as undermining Taiwan if products come from China. And then even, let's say, recently the National Palace Museum. So the souvenirs in the National Palace Museum came under fire for being manufactured in China. So, Donovan, it sounds like the government have got a big job here. As a layperson, I could I could imagine it would be quite quick to monitor all the government computers to make sure they don't have Chinese-made things in. But I obviously don't know what I'm talking about, because obviously it is a big job, Donovan. Yes, it's an extremely big job. Um, and there was a bit of a scandal um, uh, a little while back where uh, here in Taichung they were talking about how, uh, and I think this spread nationally, that a lot of the schools here had Chinese-made um, surveillance cameras uh, in them. Now, I don't really know what China could do with information on, you know, kindergarten kids uh, or elementary school kids uh, running around on the playground, uh, you know, monitoring that. But there is actually... If you, you know, there are possibilities they could know how to kidnap some important person's child or something like that. Although, for the most part, it's probably not very useful to China. But again, China has been collecting medical records from people around the world and, you know, including things like elementary school surveillance footage. If they really wanted to build a profile on somebody, say some important official, you know, including the information of, you know, where their kids are studying, how they behave, the medical records of that person, you can, and the data that they hack from all sorts of different sources, you can start to build up a sort, you know, a, a dossier of information on somebody where they could start to find out particular weaknesses or strengths about a person, and that could actually prove to be very, very useful to uh, China in the sense that, you know, if they know what your allergies are and you know you have a severe allergy to something, for example, then they could neutralize this person. Um, or they know where their children are at. And, you know, we remember the 90s when kidnapping was very, very common. Um, and there are still people here with the skills to be able to do that. Um, so, you know, it sounds on the surface like it's just kind of it's just paranoid um, that we really, you know, I mean, come on, you know, ByteDance owns TikTok. What are they going to do with all these, you know, videos of kids dancing? And 99.99% of the information that's collected from these things is irrelevant and China's probably going to do absolutely nothing with it. But they can use it when they zoom in on a particular target. And that's when it gets scary. It's not so much that they're going to do any do much with the vast amounts of data that they collect in aggregate. It's when they start to take the data and go, okay, this person, this particular person is an enemy of China and we are going to now access all of this data to focus in on this one person, and that's when it gets creepy. 
And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, This Week. And we're going to look at some of the latest election news now as the coronavirus pandemic, the response to flooding and law and order all proved to be the main themes of debate among the mayoral candidates in Taipei. Now, the DPP's Chen Shih-jong and the KMT's Zheng Wen-an both came out blazing following the flooding that affected parts of the city earlier this week due to the torrential rain that battered the island as a tropical storm was passing by in the south. How ironic. Anyway, Taipei Mayor Kerwin also faced a backlash for being out of the city when the flooding was happening as he was in Nanto County and in Taichung. Now, he took offence at that and he actually threw that back in the people's faces that said it and he accused officials that went to places where there was a disaster of you doing it for a publicity stunt. Now, when the Taipei mayoral hopefuls weren't taking aim at the outgoing mayor, they were beating up on each other, albeit verbally, over the purchase of coronavirus vaccines and quarantine hotels. And on Thursday... Law and order took centre stage following a shooting in Taipei's Wanhua district. So, Brian, busy week for the mayoral hopefuls and a bashing week for the current mayor. Yeah, that's right. And so it's not surprising that when some incident happens, then the opponents that are trying to seek the Taipei mayorship are attacking then Koenja as the incumbent. And so this comes up regarding the shootings, for example, that law and order is not being carried out, that crime is out of control in Taipei, for example. Uh, one has similar allegations leveled against Hoyo in New Taipei at some points, for example, regarding the police, uh, particularly because of his history as a police official. Uh, and then regarding flooding, for example, in Taipei and, and the fact that there's severe effects, uh, that there are people are stuck in the Riverside Park because they went there for World Music Day and then the floodgates closed. And so they're stuck in the, the Datia Metis Riverside Park and they were not notified ahead of time. Uh, but then I think also then it points to that a lot of the election is very focused on the past record of the Tsai administration that COVID takes such a uh, pressing centrality. I mean, part of it is obviously because Chen Shijong is the former Minister of Health. But then it, it points to how a lot of the running, the races are not actually so focused on local issues per se, but as a referendum on how the pan-green and pan-blue camps are perceived. And of course, Brian, by literally theoretically knocking Kerwin Jur, you're knocking the third big candidate, Vivian Huang. That's right. She can't come out and say anything about him because he was her boss. Yeah, exactly. And so attacking Ke is obviously a proxy then for attacking Vivian Huang. And so that's one of the reasons then why the KMT and DPP have centred on this. Uh, but it's kind of interesting too. I mean, the situation does surprise me that polling shows Chen Shidong doing well uh, in traditionally pan-blue Taipei. It's it, possibility is a divided vote, but then also I feel like both Vivian Huang and Jiang Wanan have not really managed to grab the spotlight as much as one would expect. Particularly Jiang Wanan, who was quite good at doing that while he was legislator, but apparently not as much as a mayoral candidate. And of course, in in central Taiwan, Donovan, we had some big big wigs were going there to stump for people this past week. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you referenced Kuwens uh, uh, coming down here. Uh, Taichung Mayor Lu Xiaoyan went went up to Nanto to uh, support Shu uh, Xuhua, um, the KMT candidate for Nanto County Commissioner. And on the twenty eighth, we've got Hang Guoyu is going to come and uh, also stump for her in Nanto. Um, and you might remember Xu uh, from uh, she did she was frequently an MC uh, as a, she was a, uh, came to uh, Nan, law, lawmaker from Nanto uh, during a lot of um, uh, Hanguoyu or Dan, Daniel Hanguoyu's uh, campaign rallies. She would come out uh, and act as an MC, frequently dressed as Wonder Woman. 
Um, so she, so uh, you know, it, it's uh, and they, there was a lot of pictures of them hanging out, and you know, they seem to be quite close. Um, but yeah, the but the fact of the matter is, I don't think these big wigs are really doing much to impact the races down down here. Aren't they sort of all a foregone conclusion? Well, okay. The latest My Formosa poll just came out uh, a few days ago, and a week or week or so ago, and it showed that actually, and this is a little bit surprising here in Taichung, the DPP's Tai Chi Tang, uh, he his campaign, where normally you would expect it would start to close the gap with you know the KMT mayor uh, Lu Xiuyan, his his support is actually dropping, which is really quite remarkable. And uh, he lost several percentage points uh, in the latest poll uh, over their September, uh, over their, sorry, their August poll, and this is, the latest poll was of the, was taken in September. Um, he lost several points, and Lu Xiaoyan actually gained several points, and Tsai Chi Chang is now 44 points uh, behind Lu in the latest poll, which is, you know, normally you would expect the opposition party to start closing in, and he's actually dropping farther apart. So that's kind of remarkable. Now, in Nanto, um, Xu Shuhua, she has, uh, her, she's semi-escaped the thesis scandal in that Fengjian University said you can keep your thesis but there's enough plagiarism and problems with it that you're going to have to resubmit it after redoing a bunch of work because it was problematic. So that was a semi-win for her. But Nanto is pretty solid KMT country, and she's has a long history in local politics and seems to be fairly popular. But I did see one poll which actually showed her not so far ahead as you might expect, which is interesting, but it was not a terribly reliable poll. And then you move to Zhanghua. It looks also, again, like the incumbent, uh, the KMT incumbent, uh, Wang, <clears throat> Wang Meihua. She, she should be Wang. <laughs> she, she looks like she's doing all, again, fairly strongly. Uh, the big action is whether or not you consider Mihao Li part of central Taiwan. And uh, I previously asked a uh, vice commissioner about this, and they and she said basically they consider themselves both part of central Taiwan and northern Taiwan. And Miao, the Miao Li race is absolutely, totally insane. <laughs> Brian, have you been watching the Miao Li race? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not every day that you have a candidate that has former murder charges from the past, and this has come up suddenly. <laughs> Serve prison time. Yes. And there was also allegations of fraud, kidnapping. Yeah, that's right. Gang beating as well for one of the murders. Um, and, and apparently he's, murder. he's, he's being supported by the incumbent. Yeah, and that's also really crazy, pointing to the splits in the KMT. That I mean, for one, just being the incumbent and supporting someone with the past history like that is, is one thing entirely. And then the KMT now is split on that between Party Central and local politics. And of course, many people have been demanding that this candidate donovan pull out yeah the candidate he, he he's uh you know he was a, traditionally came to stalwart and he became the uh speaker of the city council and he also was the head of the of the kmt in miali county 
and he came out uh, a few months ago. Basically, first, first, uh, Eric Jew and KMT, the KMT Central, uh, the 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 Central Party headquarters, came out and announced that they had a candidate to run for Nanto County. Uh, sorry, for Miami County Commissioner. And the the guy they chose, a legislator, he said, "Wait, what? Nobody asked me about this. I don't want the job." And so the KMT nominated somebody who didn't want the job. And so then you've got, uh, so then they turned around and they were going to, and so the party central was left scrambling. And uh, this guy, you know, um, the, the, the council speaker, Zhong uh, Dongjin, he, he came out and reiterated, he said, I want to be the candidate. And he said, there's a lot of rumors around me being a murderer and a rapist, but that's not true. I just, and he held this big press conference and said, it's not true that I'm a murderer and I'm not a rapist. And that's why this party central didn't choose me as a candidate. I want to set the record clear. I am, and then went out and basically said, I stabbed a guy who's a friend of mine and committed uh, criminal adultery. And it turns out that he was lying about that, that he actually did have a criminal record. He and a group of guys beat a guy to death um, in the 80s, but he claimed and said that he was a victim of martial law era manipulations, but as his opponent pointed out, he was put in jail after martial law had ended. And, of course, they beat the guy up at a, at a banquet uh, that left the guy dead. Um, and uh, so anyway, he, he basically left the party. The KMT nominated a guy, uh, irrigation official, um, who had a, a little bit of a cleaner reputation than him, in spite of the fact that the irrigation uh, has, a, anyway, the, the irrigation officials have a long history of connections with being corrupt. Um, but... He, this guy apparently at least has a better reputation than, than Jung does. So Jung, and so Jung left the party. He's continuing to run. He's, he came out and admitted that yes, he's in the, he stabbed a guy and, uh, he committed a criminal adultery. And then it, it recently has come out that he, that he did indeed join a group of guys, beat a guy to death in the eighties. And now finances of candidates have come out. He owns 159 properties. He's involved in the gravel business, which, again, we can't say that necessarily he's involved in anything illegal here, but traditionally there have been a lot of gangsters and KMT patronage faction politicians have been involved in the gravel business because the if you can get government officials to to look the other way, you can basically act with impunity and dig up riverbeds and whatever to feed the construction industry. Um, and so it's a very lucrative business, but you need to be able to get the government to look the other way. So that's why there's uh, been a traditional connection between corruption and this. But, and the current uh, county commissioner, who is, again, KMT, has broken ranks with the party and is supporting Jung in his independent bid and Party Central was supposed to uh, yesterday uh, 
but apparently they couldn't get enough members to join to 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 vote and so right now whether they're going to kick out the current county commissioner is in limbo uh, until they can pull together a meeting with enough members supporting it on the committee to expel them from the party. Uh, and, and I'm just scratching the surface on the weirdness uh, of this race. And believe it or not, most polls, not all, but most polls, have shown that Jung is actually still ahead in the race, crushing the KMT candidate, who's usually uh, third or fourth in the polls, and in all but one poll that I've seen, he's still ahead of the DPP candidate, although one poll I saw, saw did have the DPP candidate ahead. And in some other interesting election news this week, Brian, of course, there's been a bit of a stink about airbrushing on your candidate's posters. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that happens every year. So it's one of those things that's kind of puzzling uh, that most ads are very heavily photoshopped. And so when you see the actual person, they look quite different, actually, usually trying to make them look younger and so forth. But uh, it did come up as an issue, I guess. Any particular candidate has caught your eye where they don't actually look like their photo? Uh, there was a candidate in Taipei and Da'an a few years ago that really uh, got a lot of attention because she was much older than the, the uh, campaign appearance on the ad. I mean, oftentimes this is, I think, a product of gendered beauty standards, for example, particularly regarding female politicians, but it, her, uh, her ad was very heavily photoshopped. Uh, it's also kind of interesting for me, though, sometimes when you look at the details on, for example, hands, uh, particularly, or other elements of a poster, they often are very visibly photoshopped. And so it really does depend on how much budget somebody has, for example. Uh, sometimes, for example, someone wearing a costume, that costume is actually photoshopped on. It's a candidate uh, Ling Xingyi in Xingyi uh, district, uh, or maybe it's Dan, I don't remember, who often dresses as a kind of female knight from kind of Chinese civil rec tales. Uh, but oftentimes the sword is that she's holding is, is photoshopped on. So when you look at the hand, the hand is like very blurry, or it's very indistinct. And of course, Brian, there's also been claims this year that a lot of the posters from, for different candidates look very much alike. They're all in the same pose, for example. Um, yeah, that's right. And so it's very repetitive. And sometimes you kind of wonder if it's the same head on a different body or something like that. I'm actually, I've wondered whether they get the same company to do these posters. That is also the case, I think, uh, because of the fact that uh, candidates are particularly closely aligned or often working with the same companies, uh, for example, for graphic design, for producing posters and, and uh, campaign goods and things like that. So I think that is actually quite possible. It is actually correct. Uh, there was a, a few months ago, there was a, a case where they were talking about a photographer uh, who did sort of all the campaigns of all the pan blue people, but also was doing TPP. And then there was a lot of, you know, talk of the TPP and uh, being part of the pan blue camp because they happen to use the same photographer. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I, that may be a bit of a stretch, but, uh, but yeah, they, they, there are, they, they tend to use the same photographers and the same suppliers. Yeah. Sorry, just a heads up. I flubbed up the name of the candidate, candidate actually, the KMT candidate. You better better tell our listeners what the real name was. Yeah, yeah. so that was uh, Wang Xingyi. There we go. There we go. Anyway, before we go this week, the Zhonghua County government has been the target of much mockery over the past several weeks after it unveiled a new mascot. Now, the mascot was created to attract volunteers for the Zhonghua Department of Social Affairs. And, well, the introduction of the mascot was followed by an internet poll to pick a name. However, the county government's best-laid plans went quickly to pot after people took to the internet 
in their droves to ridicule the actual mascot, which is shaped like the county. There we go. But it has a face and limbs, and it's wearing a baseball cap with the words Zhanghua County in English and Chinese on it. Now, the name chosen in the online poll was one that phonetically sounded like the word yam in hoklo. But the most liked comments suggesting a new name was the simple word Doritos, as people said that the actual mascot itself looked like one of the popular chips that had been left out lying around for a few days, Donovan. Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And uh, here's an interesting vocabulary word for you. Uh, off the hat uh, that the, the the baseball cap that the mascot is wearing, there is a half a dealy bopper uh, with a heart shape sticking out of it uh, on, on the top as well. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the mascot, which has a live version, meaning a person in a costume, and then, of course, it's also, there's a, you know, digital image uh, spread around. And this is to help promote volunteerism. Now, when the, the mascot was unveiled, there was a massive amount, and you don't think that, you know, a service volunteer mascot would really attract very much attention, but it attracted a massive amount of attention was dominating the headlines in Changhua um, and has been heavily in the headlines now for three weeks or so um, uh, because it did attract so much ridicule. Uh, but uh, there's almost kind of a, a semi-backlash to it in a sense in that people are actually kind of warming up to this bizarre-looking mascot in part because the the social affairs department actually kind of embraced some of the, the ridicule uh, when the you know when when everyone said the thing looked like a Dorito and also looked like you know a crumpled dumpling and all these kinds of things. Um, they actually sent the mascot a person in the mascot costume to a store and then bought a bag of Doritos and then had the and then posed for a picture with it and then you know they they quoted the mascot as saying this is the first time I've ever had Doritos you know they're yummy or something to that effect right um, in other words sort of mocking the mockery and so there has been kind of a, a little bit of an embracement of the mascot because it is so ridiculous and weird looking um, and one uh, you know an enterprising person actually went out and created a series of line stickers based on this mascot and was trying to sell them for 30 and T and of course this is not sanctioned by the by the social affairs department in Zhanghua, um, and they're trying to get those stickers taken down. Uh, but somebody went out there and tried to make money off of this thing. So, you know, it, it seems like there's actually it's actually being kind semi-embraced. So what was your take, Brian, on the Zhanghua County mascot? So it's actually kind of funny because I've talked to people that are involved in government bureaus that end up designing the mascots, and sometimes it is the younger people that are pushing for that. And the argument I've heard is that, for example, a lot of government mascots are just too indistinct because they just are kind of cutesiest and actually a bit generic. But you think about, for example, these highly uh, distinctive and recognizable Japanese prefectural mascots, for example, and a lot of it is actually because they're quite strange. There's some odd element about it that's not exactly cute, but is just funny or strange or, or and so forth. And so I think actually this mascot fits the, that criteria. So maybe this is actually a rather uh, memorable mascot. So they've, it is. <laughs> they've, they've, Zhanghua County succeeded where we thought they'd failed. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And from Taichung by Donovan Smith. 
And great to be back. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.